I thought about staying seated for just a few seconds to make it seem like I forgot to preach, which is something I might actually do, so it wouldn't be that funny. If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up and turn to Revelation 22, please? Uh, The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, is where we'll be here in just a moment. And we're going to read two of the last four verses, uh, verses 18 and 19 of Revelation 22 here in just a second. There are some things in life that you expect to be super restricting, but they end up bringing you a surprising amount of comfort. For me, an example is when I went to Florida College. When I went to Florida College, uh, they had curfew. I I think they still do. I'm not sure if the times are exactly the same. Uh, But they had curfew on weekdays at 11 p.m. and curfew on weekends at midnight. And when I was going down there, I thought that was going to be really restricting to me, keeping me from going out and doing things that I wanted to do, in part because I had never had a curfew before. Now, young people, before you go to your parents tonight and say, well, Mr. Reagan didn't have a curfew. Why don't I have a curfew? Um, I grew up in West Texas, as you know, and there was nothing to do after about dark. Uh, I I was out late a lot um, at the gym by myself shooting baskets, uh, and I had to at least call my parents and tell them where I was going to be and what time they expected me in, but it was no big deal if I was a little late as long as I called and let them know. So I'm going down to Florida College and I think a curfew, a curfew. That's just, that's going to be horrible. You know, I have to be in by this certain time every night. But it didn't take long for me to figure out that having that time with everyone getting in at the same time really promoted getting to know people. Some of my very best times were in the dorm after curfew and And you didn't have to worry about getting left out or anything like that because everybody had to be at the same place at the same time. And it gave a natural starting time for things that you might do together with friends, like a Bible study that some of the guys from my dorm started 15 minutes after curfew on weeknights that I participated in. And so curfew, this thing in my mind that I'd built up as something that was going to be really restricting to me, believe it or not, became something that made my life better and easier. It was comforting to me to know that everybody was going to be in at that time. May I suggest tonight that there are so many things in God's Word that are like that, things that we expect to be restricting and making us conform to something that's going to be detrimental to us, things that are restricting that keep us from doing things that we really want to do that are good in our lives. But it ends up that things that we think are going to be restricting from God are actually things that make our lives better and easier, that bring us comfort and joy. And I want to think about one of those things tonight as it relates to our understanding interpretation and interpretation of the Bible. Now, for the lesson tonight, we, we have to kind of have some common ground. I, I believe that the Bible is inspired. I believe that it is from God. And you don't necessarily have to believe that in order to get something out of the lesson tonight. At the very least, I want us to see what the Bible claims for itself about this concept, about this idea. The surprising comfort of not adding to or taking from the Word of God. And my goal this evening is twofold. First, to show you from Scripture why that concept is true and biblical. And that would should be enough, I suppose. Yes, this is what the Bible teaches. 
But I want to take it a step further tonight. I want to show you tonight, secondly, that this concept isn't just true. But for those of us who are Christians trying to live as God has instructed us to live, it's a blessing that this concept is true. That there is surprising comfort in not adding to or taking from the Word of God. So let's begin at the ending. In Revelation chapter 22 and verses 18 and 19, the Apostle John writing the last words of the New Testament, the last apostle that was alive, inspired by God. And he says this in verses 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now it certainly seems that John's specific application is to just the book of Revelation, this this last book that was written in what we call the New Testament. But I want to suggest tonight that that principle applies to all the Bible. Is that true, that we shouldn't go beyond and add to the things that are inspired by God, and we ourselves as people today shouldn't take from those things that are inspired by God? I believe that it is true. And it's something that is explicit when we look at our Old Testaments in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you want to turn back there in your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2. Moses is going over the law again. That's Deuteronomy, second law, right? And so he says in verse 2, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. What Moses is instructing them here is not that there would be no further revelation from God. Instead, what he's saying is you, you as an uninspired believer in God who's trying to follow God's commands, you do not have the right to add to or take from the things that God has revealed. He says a very similar thing in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. Whatever I command you, Deuteronomy 12.32, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Uh, We see a similar idea in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure, maybe your translation says, tested, others say, refined, other translations say. It's the idea that it's tested and found pure, right? That this is the pure, unadulterated word of God. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So again, it's not the idea that 
further revelation couldn't come from God, but that we don't have the right to add to or take from that revelation. Well, that's the Old Testament. And certainly there are differences in when we think about the Old and New Testament. What about in the New Testament? Do we have New Testament examples where they took from or added to the Word of God and they were condemned for doing so? Um, I think we have some good examples. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at some examples of Jesus, give you an example of Jesus, and then give you an example from the epistles um, that show this same concept. So don't take from God's Word. We see this uh, with Jesus in John chapter 4. If you turn over there, John chapter 4. Uh, we referenced a couple of scriptures from this passage, uh, this chapter, this morning. So Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans were relatives of the Jews, um, but they had a different religion, lived in a different part of the country. And notice this exchange that he has with this woman, beginning in verse 19. Jesus has told her the sin that she's involved in. He knows all these things about her. And so she's going to shift the, the focus from a moral discussion to a doctrinal discussion. The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to. To worship. This was the biggest religious dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews. And when convicted of her own sin, this is the first place that she ran. Here's the big difference between you Jews and us Samaritans. The Samaritan religion included elements of paganism, and they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the books of Moses, and they claimed that all other books outside of those first five were illegitimate. In other words, they took from the complete Word of God. And this left them with all sorts of false conclusions that would have been cleared up if they had accepted the rest of the books of the Old Testament. They were looking at their Messiah as an exclusively Moses-like figure. So they expected a Messiah to come, but they expected him to just be like Moses and not have any of the other qualities that we see that uh, the rest of the Old Testament talks about. They established their own temple on Mount Gerizim that was destroyed by this time that they were having this conversation. That's the mountain that she was pointing to saying, our fathers said to worship on this mountain, but you Jews say down in Jerusalem. And they built that temple to rival the temple in Jerusalem. Because in claiming only the first five books, they said, well, there's no specificity about where the temple should be or how exactly we should worship in that way. By taking from the Word of God, they were far different doctrinally than the Jews were. And Jesus doesn't pass over this difference. He doesn't say, well, it doesn't matter, no big deal. Instead, he addresses it head on. Keep reading in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when you will, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. The time is coming in, in Christ's kingdom where the place of worship is no longer what's going to be important. But, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is 
When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He says to her, you worship what you do not know. Wait, didn't they accept the first five books of the Old Testament? Didn't they know Yahweh, Jehovah? Not according to Jesus. Without accepting all of God's revelation, they could not fully and truly know God. And thus they could not be right with God because they were taking from God's Word. Well, what about in the epistles? Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are a number of examples that we could use in Acts and the epistles, but I think this is perhaps the most clear example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. There were some who were denying a couple of things in the church in Corinth. They were denying the the bodily presence of Jesus, that, that Jesus actually came in the flesh, and they were denying a bodily resurrection, that you were really going to rise from the dead. And so Paul addresses this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he had been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus was raised, how can you say that nobody's going to be raised? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, or those Christians who have died, they have also perished. For if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Oh, that's all. (laughs) They had removed just this one concept, the resurrection of the dead. And what Paul is saying is this is a linchpin for the rest of Christianity. And, And taking out this one linchpin, this one doctrine, taking out this one thing from the Word of God causes the collapse of the whole system. They had removed only one thing, but it affected everything else. And Paul warns these brethren of not just the hopelessness of this doctrine, that we are pitiable and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the dead do not raise, rise, but he also says that there is, there's a sinfulness to this. It's not just uncomforting or, or wrong, it's sinful. Drop down to verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, we quote that usually a lot of times to our teenagers or whatever. You know, don't run around with people who are doing drugs because you're going to be tempted to do bad things. And that's, that's an appropriate application, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these people who are teaching this doctrine. And Paul says, you don't need to have anything to do with those people who are teaching this false doctrine because it's going to corrupt your understanding of who God is and our relationship with Him. Awake to righteousness, verse 34, and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now they had a lot of knowledge about Christ and about God, but he said when they take away from God's Word, that means they don't truly and fully have the knowledge of God. Now, 
I think this is maybe the easier point of the two. Most people agree, you know what, we, we probably shouldn't take from God's Word. And, and there are exceptions to that. My, uh, my father-in-law, Steve, he had a Bible study with a lady one time, and they were talking about a number of things uh, in the biblical text. And, and he said, well, let's turn over to the book of James and see what James says about that. And she says, well, I don't have James in my Bible. Like, what? Well, what Bible are you using? And she told him the version or whatever. He says, well, I know James is in there. She says, not in my Bible. Because I tore it out. Well, maybe we're not that extreme, right? But there are a lot of people who maybe want to take just certain things out of the New Testament. Maybe Paul's teaching on women. Oh, that's that's backwards, you know. That's just cultural. Or maybe the condemnation of homosexuality. Or others want to demythologize the Bible, the Jesus seminar folks. And, and others say, well, let's just get the teaching. Let's take out all the miracles. But what about adding two? Changing with the times. I think that's much more common than this idea of taking from God's Word. So what about that? What do we see in the New Testament about not adding to or changing God's Word? Turn to Galatians chapter 1, if you would. This letter is a little bit different than some of the other epistles in the New Testament. It was written to a number of churches in a region, the region of Galatia. And again, there's a false doctrine that's running around here in this area that Paul wants to address. Beginning in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. If we pervert it, if we distort it, if we change it, it's another gospel. It's not the same good news. And so Paul says this, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. That's that Greek word that we know even in English, anathema. He is anathema if he preaches a different gospel. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And then he says something very interesting in verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul says, Do you want me to ask God to change or ask you to change? Am I supposed to persuade God to do something different than what He has revealed? Or is my job to persuade myself and others that we need to conform ourselves to God? Now the specific problem here in these churches in Galatia is that there were some who were binding circumcision on the Gentiles, those Judaizing teachers that sometimes you've heard about in Bible studies. And they were saying that you had to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ plus all of the different requirements of Judaism if you wanted to be right with God. They were adding to. And what Paul says is that's a different gospel with a different Christ. And I'm not going to ask God to change what He has revealed. We need to conform ourselves to Him. Uh, I, I like maybe the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians 4 and verse 6. 
beginning in verse 1, actually, he says, Let a man so consider us, himself, Apollos, other preachers of the gospel, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So that's just what God has revealed. That's what those mysteries are. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Uh, Maybe we don't deal with stewards very often, but we do deal with children, right? And how would we feel if we told one of our kids to go tell another one of our kids what they needed to do or what our requirement was or what we were asking them to do, and they went, and instead of telling our message, they changed it. They added some other things that were helpful to them, maybe with their sibling. We wouldn't be too happy about that, right? And so what Paul says here, that's that's what we are for the message of the gospel. It's not just something that we made up ourselves and we can just add to it however we want. We're trying to say what it is God has told us to say. And so in verse 6 he says this, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, arrogant, on behalf of one another against the other. Don't think beyond what is written. Now, I want you to trace the argument in 1 Corinthians with me. In chapter 1 and verse 10, they had a problem with division, in no small part because they were relying on the wisdom of men. And they were putting men up on pedestals and saying, I'm following after this guy and whatever, whatever he says. But the wisdom of God, Paul says, comes from revelation. The Holy Spirit working through inspired men. He talks about that in chapter 2. And thus, they shouldn't get hung up on specific preachers as though man's wisdom had somehow given them the gospel. He he talks about that in chapter 3. Apollos and Paul stayed within what was revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what they did, even though they had the Holy Spirit. And he said, you need to be doing the exact same thing. And there's very clear application to be made today, right? You can't just accept what I say. You have to search it out for yourself. Because ultimately it's about what God says and not adding to or taking from His Word. Not the words of me or any other man, um, as they said on Reading Rainbow, but don't take my word for it, right? We've got to search it out for ourselves. So, we see that in the epistles. Let's see it with Jesus as well. Uh, You're probably familiar with Matthew 15. Jesus had so many run-ins with the scribes and Pharisees because of their traditions, because they were adding to the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 2, we see a very clear example of that. The scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask Him this question, verse 2. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? I mean, you're coming to me asking me about my apostles not doing your traditions when you're over there destroying God's commandments by your traditions. And here's the example that he uses. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Luke's account says it's Korban, right? 
I'm going to give it to God. Instead of giving it to my parents, I'm going to give it to the temple or whatever. Now, why would people do that? Because there's a lot less work involved in that. I can just write a check. Well, they didn't have checks. But I can write a check. We barely have checks today. I can give money over to the temple, and I don't have to worry about taking care of my parents. And Jesus says that tradition, that makes the actual law of God of no effect. Then, verse 6, he need not honor his mother or father. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. He said, you've added to the word of God, and in doing so, you've changed it to where you've made it of no effect. Okay, don't do it. Everybody got it? (laughs) We're on the same page? Okay. Thanks for the reminder, Reagan. Uh, Maybe I've brought something out you hadn't heard before. I hope so. But I want to impress upon all of us as we make application at the end of our lesson tonight. This is not something God does so that we can't have everything we want to have or do everything we want to do. God's purpose in restricting us from adding to or taking from His Word is not a detriment to our lives. This is not something that's bad for us. It is a great thing that we don't have to add to or take from the Word of God. It is a blessing That we can be secure with what we have in the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less. May I make that argument in three ways? It brings comfort to us, not adding to or taking from the Word of God, because we can put our faith in God instead of ourselves. I have more faith in God than me, don't you? Um, Do you have more faith in God than yourself as well? Shouldn't I act that way in regard to the way I handle His Word? Jeremiah laid down this fundamental principle in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. O Lord, he says, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Do you want guidance from God? Let me hear your head rattle. Do you want guidance from God? Do you want some direction in your life? I think sometimes we want God as a sort of spiritual advisor in our life. But we're still the king. You know, God is, God is Merlin and we're King Arthur. But that's not the way it works at all. How silly is that? God is the king. And we are the servants who are instructed by God on what to do. Even more, that's just not the way it works. We can pick and choose, but ultimately it only helps us in this life because He will reject us in the next. We can pick and choose and take certain things out of the Bible and say, hey, that sounds good, that might help me in my life, and it might help me in my life. But I can't be right with God with that kind of attitude. Um, I like thinking outside the box, don't you? Um, and that's one of the things in the education world, in the corporate world, that's something we, we hold up that's, that's a great thing. And I think it is a great thing, being creative, finding new solutions to old problems, all of those sorts of things. Thinking outside the box is a good thing. But in a religious context, may I suggest that thinking outside the box is, um, is maybe not the right thing. I heard a preacher say one time, and it stuck with me, he said, we need to learn to think inside the box about New Testament Christianity. And you know what the box is? This is the box. We need to learn to think within the parameters of what God has given us, because this is the place... This is the place of safety and comfort and hope. This is our box. I think a good example of this is in Matthew chapter 22 in verse 40. 
Remember, there is a lawyer that comes questioning Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And you could probably tell me, no problem, what Jesus' response was, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that sounds pretty good. we got to love. And that's exactly what we have to do. But then he says in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How many definitions of love are there in our culture, in our society? So many different ways to love. So many ideas about what love is. But what Jesus says is, these are fundamental. They're the motivation for the law and the prophets. But it's also a matter of these law and prophets are still hanging there. They interpret for us what true love really looks like. God is love. And God has the right to define love in terms in terms that we can understand and must follow. And that's what the rest of the Bible does for us. It shows us what it looks like to love God and love our neighbor. God knows better than I do. True? What we really believe about that is revealed in how we handle the Word of God. It must be exhausting trying to decide what to keep, what to throw out, what to add to. There is no stop to such thinking because it puts our faith in ourselves that I know better than God what I need in my life. But there's great comfort in having more faith in the all-knowing, all-powerful Creator than in myself. Secondly, it brings comfort because we can have peace in a complete knowledge of God's will. Isn't it comforting that we aren't to add to or take from because this is where all of the answers are. And those answers don't change. The answers for Paul and Peter and John are the same answers for me when I go and examine the Word of God. Uh, on Facebook Messenger, uh, I actually tried this this afternoon with Stephanie Used to, you could text a little basketball to someone and then click on that basketball and this little mini game would pop up. Uh, and Stephanie and I went back and forth on that a number of times, you know, trying to get new high scores. And here's the way the game would work. For 10 baskets, the, the basket was just there. So you, you swipe up with your finger, you shoot the little basketball. Then after 10 baskets, it starts going back and forth very slowly, back and forth. Then after 10 more baskets, if you make them in a row... Yeah, pretty good at this. It goes back and forth really fast. And then you make 10 more baskets after that. You know what it starts doing? Woo! Just moving all over the place, bouncing around like an old Windows screensaver. Why is that the progression? Because it's a lot harder to hit a moving target, right? And for many people, that's what following God has become. If we can just change with the times, if we can do whatever we want, if one church over here can do one thing and another church over there can do another thing, and none of us have the same standard, all of us have a moving target. Who's right? Who's wrong? It's hard to determine. But if we can come back to just the Word of God and have a knowledge of what God's will is, not that we know everything or know everything perfect, but we know where perfectly, but we know where to go in order to find those things and see what God's will for us is. There is no moving target in Christianity where it's one thing now, but we might have to do something else later on. Everything we need to know is here within God's Word. 
And we don't have to worry about it changing from person to person or year to year or culture to culture. It is consistent. As 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. It's from Him. And it's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is only a perfect word that could make a perfectly complete man or woman of God. And I don't have to wonder about whether my personal experience is really from God or not. Um, I've got a good friend. He's always talking about, well, I think the Spirit's telling me what to do right here. I'm like, how do you know? Like, how do you know that's not the devil? Can I find it in God's Word? That's how I know. And there's great comfort in that. I can know everything I need to. All things that pertain to life and godliness, Peter said if I don't add to it or take from it. And then the final thing that brings comfort to me is that we can have a genuine relationship with a genuine Jesus. Something that I get tired of, false dichotomies of all kinds drive me nuts, right? Um, is it A or B? No, it's C. Jesus never fell into that trap. I mean, read the Gospels. He is so great about them saying, what do you think? Is it this or that? And he's like, dummies, it's neither one of those. What are you talking about? That's a very loose paraphrase. And one of the false dichotomies that we're given in religion is you're either all about a strict adherence of God's Word or you're about an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Those things are not at odds, brothers and sisters. Those things go together. It is only when we have an attitude that I want to follow what God says that I can have a true and intimate and deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't know Jesus unless we know the Jesus revealed in the Word of God. Look, if you would, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a couple of other passages, and then the lesson will be yours to think about and do with what you will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Again, Paul says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. And what did the serpent deceive Eve about? About who God was. About the character of God. He took from and he added to what God said in such a clever way that they didn't really know God or appreciate his character as they should. So, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity, the purity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He says, I'm afraid that your attitude isn't right in this. You're going to put up with people preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit than the one that you have received. Another Jesus. What does that look like? Um, maybe we think that it looks totally different than the Jesus of the text. But can I remind you that 90% of Jesus is another Jesus. It is either 100% of him or none at all. 
And many people, even today, worship a Jesus who never lived. And it's always amazing to me how much those Jesuses look like us. Do you know my Jesus, we sing. And and hopefully our Jesus is the one found in the text. But folks have imagined a lot of Jesuses. You know, cowboy Jesus, and hipster Jesus, and biker Jesus, hunter Jesus, sporty Jesus. A Jesus who never judges. A Jesus who judged on physical characteristics. A Jesus who supports a certain political party. A Jesus who cared nothing about social issues. A Jesus who only cared about social issues. These aren't the real Jesus. Those are idols that we have made into our own image. And creating our own vision and version of Jesus is a temporary physical band-aid on every one of our eternal and spiritual problems. We need to know Jesus as He is. Amen? And if we sell out for anything else, we're only hurting ourselves. Final passage tonight is Colossians chapter 2. So turn over there with me, please. Look there in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Live your life because you've accepted Christ Jesus the Lord as He is. And, And nobody else can receive Him for you. You are the one who has to receive Him. We drop down to verse 8. He says, well, let's go ahead and read verse 7 too. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. That's the Gospel. That's found in God's Word. As you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Again, it's not something restricting, it's something beneficial and helpful to us. We give thanks to God for it. It's a wonderful blessing in which we can abound instead of being held back. But then he says in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. When we seek a relationship with Jesus outside of His Word, by adding to or taking from what He says, all we're doing is cheating ourselves or allowing others to cheat us of the real thing. So if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, Our goal is not to add to or take from the Word of God. And if you would like to talk about applications to that, what that looks like as we're trying to do that, there's nothing that we would love more than to sit down and study with you from God's Word about that. And if you can point out things where we're inconsistent in that, we want to know those things genuinely, truly, so that we might conform ourselves to Him instead of trying to conform Him to ourselves. And if it's a matter of becoming a Christian, he goes on to say this beginning in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses. And there are some, there are some genuine good believers who want to take from the Word of God and say, you don't have to do that. But don't take my word for it. What do you read for yourself? If you're here tonight and you need to be right with God, what is it you need to do? We can help you with it. Come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Would you live?